We've been studying through the book of Acts, so you can turn with me to the book of Acts in chapter 6. For those of you who have not been with us, one of the ways we've been looking at this book, especially the last few chapters and possibly the next chapter as well, we've been seeing different ways in which the devil has been attacking the church. The church of God, or the church of Jesus Christ, was uh, created by him to do the work of God at this present age. Jesus was on the earth and he was doing the work of God, but he was training men to take over after he was done. And when he completed the work, which is in the book, containing the book of the Gospels, in the beginning of the book of Acts, he gives the great commission to the church and tells them, now it's your job. You need to continue to carry on the word, to tell the gospel, to bring the message that when people hear the message and they believe the message in their heart, they become saved. Instead of, of going to hell, they will go to heaven for all of eternity. That was the job of the church. They were to bring out the gospel. And now, the devil doesn't like that, and so he's been attacking the church in different ways. We talked last week about persecution. The week before that, we talked about hypocrisy in the church. And it seems like the devil goes back and forth. He attacks them you know, from the outside, and then he attacks them from the inside. And he attacks them from the outside, and now this week he's going to be attacking them from the inside again. And as we're studying about these attacks, we always want to be taking applications to ourselves and think, well... The devil wasn't just attacking the church like that in those days. He's also attacking the church in these days in similar ways. And as we see how they deal with these attacks, that help, helps us know how we should be dealing with these attacks when they come our way. With that, let's read the first seven verses in the book of Acts. Sorry, first seven verses in the sixth chapter of the book of Acts. Now in those days, when the number of the disciples was multiplying, there arose a murmuring against the Hebrews by the Hellenists, because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. Then the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, It is not desirable that we should live the word of God and serve tables. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And the saying pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen, or Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch whom they set before the apostles, and when they had prayed, they laid hands on them. And the word of God spread, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. We have this phrase here in verse 1, where it says the daily distribution. It says that the widows of the Hellenists were neglected in the daily distribution. What was the daily distribution? We want to see that. We actually have to turn back a couple pages to the end of chapter 4. 
And read, starting reading at verse 32, Acts chapter 4, beginning to read at verse 32, Now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. And with great power the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Nor was there anyone among them who lacked, for all who were possessors of lands or houses sold them and, and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold and laid them at the apostles' feet, and they distributed to each as anyone had need. So this was the practice of the saints in those days, believers that had possessions such as houses or lands, sold their houses and their land. They took the money that came out of selling their houses and their land. They laid it at the feet of the apostles. The apostles then took that money and gave it to people who had need. There were people who had serious needs. This passage talked about, talks about widows. Widows, uh, in our days, we have an excellent system of uh, social securities, retirement programs, and a lot of ways in which people are provided for. In those days, they didn't have anything like that. So unless you happen to have been a person of, of particularly uh, good means and were wise in, in saving money, in your old age you'd be in trouble, especially if you were uh, a widow. A man may have some more things he could do to provide for himself. As the widow, as a woman whose husband died and for whatever reason her, her children weren't provided, providing for her, she would be in desperate need. And that was the need that the apostles were meeting. By the way, talking about children providing for their parents, they should be. Okay? You shouldn't... There's actually specific instruction in the scriptures to deacons about providing for widows. If the widows have children, let not the church be burdened because their children should be providing for them because mothers are worth it. <laughs> okay? For all the things they did to you, you should be providing for them in their old age in their time of need. Okay, so... So the apostles were providing, and I'm thinking of, of what's happening here. This is, history records, if you look at historical record about the church, there aren't a lot of records about the early days, but one of those records that Rick pointed out was the world noticed that the believers loved each other. And this was demonstrated by this. People don't go out these days and sell their houses, take the money and give it to somebody else to provide for other people who, who have a financial need. People don't do that. It's, it would be considered weird and strange in the world. Okay? There was a reminder of that uh, to me this week. Sharon went to one of our neighbors to give them uh, an invitation to Eliana's birthday. It's Eliana's birthday in a couple of weeks. And uh, she heard the husband say to the wife, we really need to join their church because when they moved, the whole church moved them. <laughs> And, and I, can, I can sympathize with this man. He was standing on his uh, back in the front yard that day. Maybe he was mowing his lawn. And he sees carload after carload of people come by, unload stuff, put it inside the house, set the furniture exactly where they need to, to go. And last of all, I show up with my wife. And, you know, <laughs> there we have our house in order. And that's, that's not usual. Okay? And that's why he made that comment. This is abnormal. Well, this is another example of the love of the saints. This is not what people usually do. It's strange. It's different. Okay. Uh, 
A lot of good verses about this love of the saints. Let's go ahead and turn to one of them, and I'll quote a few other ones. John chapter 13. I'm sorry, I'm going to change that. John chapter 15. John chapter 15, starting at verse 9. As the Father loved me, I also have loved you. This is the Lord Jesus speaking. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may remain in you, and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another, as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. This is the love of the Lord Jesus. He loved us enough that instead of us having to go to hell and pay for our sins, he was willing to take our sins upon himself and experience all the suffering of hell that we deserve because of our sins. That's how much Jesus loved us. Now he turns to us and he says, in the same way that I have loved you, I want you to love one another. This is not a love of this world. Actually, if you pay close attention, you see where this love comes from. Starting in verse 9. As the Father has loved me, I also have loved you. And then he says, like this, you need to love one another. Okay, it's the love of God. It's not the love that comes in this world or exists in this world. It's the love of God, which is why people in those days thought the Christians were strange when they were loving or different when they were loving each other. And that's why people today see us as different because we love each other. And that's not a normal love to this world. It's the love of God, okay? Which he wants us, by the way, again, Jesus commanded, I want you guys to love each other like this. Okay, it's a commandment from him. Here's a few more verses about it. So, Jesus commands it. Second of all, Jesus prayed for it. This is a quote from John 17, 26, the very end of Jesus' uh, prayer for the, for the believers. It says, you don't have to turn there, I'll read it for you. Jesus prayed for them. He said, and I have declared to them your name and will declare that the love with which you loved me may be in them and I in them. Jesus prayed that this love will exist among us. Okay? Number three, God works this love. God is the one who's actually working in us and creating this love. Okay? It says, uh, this is 1 Thessalonians 4 9, but concerning brotherly love, you have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. We don't give a crash course to people who join this church, saying from now on you have to start loving the believers. It's something God does, He works within people. And he causes them to love each other. Okay, number four, it's God's testimony to the world. Jesus said to the disciples, By this all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. So Jesus didn't just create this love in us, which he desires to be in us, but he also had another desire for it, and that this love would be a testimony to this world. He wants the world to see this love 
It's one of the strongest testimonies of the church as being from God, and really it's one of the things that pulls people to the church to hear the gospel. Okay? So this love has many purposes in, in God's manifold design of the church. Okay, well, so you can imagine, looking at all these wonderful things about this love, you could imagine how the devil feels about it. And indeed, in this passage in Acts, we'll see that the devil is attacking it. Okay? Let's go ahead and turn back to Acts. Acts chapter 6. Okay, when, when the devil attacks something, Rick talked about it before, that the devil is very wise and resourceful. Uh, he is a terrible enemy of the church. There's a, a verse in First Peter that says, Be sober, be village vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. You get a picture there of the church, if you would, sitting around a campfire, and the devil's walking around, and he's looking for a weak link. He's looking for an opportunity, somebody to get at, and that way to get at the church. And that's what was happening here. The devil was looking for an opportunity, and he found an opportunity. There's two elements to it what I called ingredient one and ingredient two. Element one, does, as believers, we're still sinners. We're not perfect. We still make mistakes. And mistakes were made in this passage. It says that the widows of the Hellenists were neglected. This was a mistake. The apostles, I'm sure the apostles didn't meant to neglect them. Uh, there's, there's a lot of fear of, of uh, discrimination here. And I'm sure there was no discrimination in the minds of the uh, apostles saying, well, here's the Hellenists. We don't really want to take care of them. Let's take care of our own. It wasn't like that. But there was still some neglect that happened in the camp of, I shouldn't say the camp of the Hellenists. There were one church. But in the church you had the, at this point everybody was Jewish. All, everybody in the church were Jews. But some of them were Hebrew Jews, meaning they kept all the Jewish culture. Some of them were Hellenist Jews who adopted a lot of the Greek customs. So they used Greek names, they spoke the Greek language, they may have read the, the scripture in the, in the Greek, the Septuagint, but they were still religious, in, they were still Jewish in faith, they still believed the Jewish doctrines, but, but they, they looked Greek to uh, most people, especially the Hebrew Jews looked at them as, you know, a different class of people somehow. Okay, so mistakes were made, the apostles neglected the, the widows, or some of the widows in the Hellenists, among the Hellenist people. Ingredient number two, so ingredient one, mistakes were made, we're still sinners, we're going to offend one another as Christians, because we're still sinners. Ingredient number two, uh, I called it short suffering. There's one, of, one of the descriptions of the Lord is that he is long suffering. That means when you do something to offend him, he doesn't immediately get upset at you. Okay, he suffers for a long time before he takes action. As believers often, especially in certain areas of our life, we're very short-suffering. We can't take very much. If somebody offends us, we react immediately. Okay, and that's what was happening here. Mistakes were made. The apostles neglected some of the widows, and there was uh, a short-suffering. A uh, hypersensitivity might be another word. Uh, among the Hellenists, they were very sensitive to discrimination because they were used to being discriminated against. When you've experienced discrimination once, you're going to be very sensitive to any sign of discrimination after that. And that was the case with the Hellenists. They were very sensitive. 
and they reacted. Now, this whole thing could have been thwarted if, if the teachings of Jesus were followed. Jesus said this. He said, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. There was an opportunity for whoever first noticed it. Maybe somebody noticed, hey, why is, you know, Mrs. Galapagos not being taken care of? And he could have gone to the apostles and say, you know, you're not doing the job right because I've seen her and she had to sit by the street and beg for food. And that's not right because I see all these other widows and they're being taken care of. Okay, so he could have gone to them and said, look, you know, you're doing wrong. And that would have allowed them to say, you know what, brother, we're very sorry, we're going to remedy this at once. This whole thing would have ended there. But that's not what happened. We see, we see in verse 1 it says, there arose a murmuring against the Hebrews by the Hellenists. There's a verse in the book of Hebrews that says this. It says, look diligently, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this many become defiled. I had a brother once share with me. He was from a, an assembly up north. And he said he saw something like this happen. There was uh, one uh, brother of family that was offended by another brother of family. And they started telling other people. And so other people now were angry against this family. And well, some people sided with, with the family that created the offense. And you slowly, you had this dividing line creep across the church. And the church ended up splitting and dying. It, it didn't become two churches. It, it just ended. Everybody left. This, imagine this, this whole, this meeting that we have today, in a few years there's nobody here because some division crept up and everybody left, everybody was offended. Okay? And that's what was happening here. There was this root of bitterness. Somebody was offended and it was spreading. It says, many became defiled. Okay? So this is something real that can happen. Satan can plant the root of bitterness. Somebody getting offended and it can get out of hand and it can, many people can become defiled as a result. And that's what became here. It spread, and many people became defiled. This love that God wanted to be in the church was no longer to be found. Instead, there was murmuring. Brother was murmuring against brother. There was dissension in the church. This beautiful thing that God had in mind for their good, for God's happiness and joy in seeing it, and for the world to see was all of a sudden gone. Okay? There, was, there was great damage done to the church as a result of this. Okay, uh, I think I mentioned that this, is, this was something, this is a strategy of the devil. He used it then, he's using it today. There's a lot of evidence in the scripture that he was using it because almost every book in the New Testament, every epistle, there's some warning. You see Paul pleading with the believers, you know, watch out for people that are causing division. Please, you know, be united in mind. There's verse after verse in the scripture. So you realize Satan was, was using this method elsewhere in other churches in the New Testament. And I was thinking of, of some of the reasons Satan is using it. Obviously, he always opposes God. But there were three, three major things that Satan accomplishes by bringing division in the church. Okay? Number one, we already mentioned, I called it death, or at the minimum, sickness. God created us to be a body. He gave each believer gifts. And each believer is supposed to minister his gifts to other, to the whole church. And, and in that passage in 1 Corinthians, Paul likens the church to a body. And he says that one member is like the hand, another is like the other hand. 
One's like the eye, one's like the ear, and he's painting a picture of, of a human body with the church. And if you take me and you cut me in half, what do you have left? You don't, you don't have two nods, you have two dead halves of me. <laughs> and that, that's what's going to happen if, if, if something like this divides the church, you don't end up with two prosper churches, you end up with probably two dead churches, or really nothing at all, because people go find some other church to be a part of. Okay? At the minimum, it's going to make the church unwell. It's going to mean one of your arms is not working anymore. Maybe one of your legs. You're not going to be able to do as much as you could with a healthy body. Okay? So, at the minimum, this is bringing sickness into the, the church. At worst, it's bringing death. Number two, there's a verse in Philippians where uh, Paul is speaking to, to uh, a particular person there. He says this, he says, I implore Judea and I implore Sintica to be of the same mind in the Lord. And I urge you also, true companion, help these women who labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. And I see Paul, he's writing this from prison, and there's all these people there that used to help Paul preach the gospel in Philip, in the regions near Philip. And here Paul is writing these people and says, please be of one mind. And he talks about the gospels saying, it's not happening anymore. What happened? You guys were serving with me. You are preaching out the gospel. And now it's ended. You guys are fighting each other. And I think that's the second reason the devil likes to bring division in the church is it gets our focus of what we should be doing. Jesus came and he told them, preach the gospel throughout the earth to every creature. There's a job for us to do here. When we're fighting each other, we're very distracted from the job the Lord gave us. We're not doing what we're supposed to be doing. Number three... Remember that this love among the church was supposed to be a witness to the world. Okay? You take away this love, there's no witness. Your lips might be moving and you're telling people the gospel, but people look in your church and they don't see any evidence of it, they're going to walk away. There's no, there's no power to the gospel when you take away the testimony of the love in the church. Okay, so, so much for Satan, his strategy, his success, temporary success in that church. We're looking now at the solution. It says, The twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, It is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and the ministry of the word. So, in a nutshell, the solution was that the apostles would no longer be responsible for the distribution of the money or the aid that was being given to the poor people. They were going to select, they weren't going to select the church, the people were going to select seven men and these people from now on would, would have the responsibility of, of ministering. Uh, the apostles used the word this business. This job of distributing to people, taking care of people's needs, it's not going to be ours anymore, it's going to be these people. Okay? Now, I don't know how many of you saw the word deacons here. And you may haven't because it's in the Greek and we have the translation. But the word serve, where it says, where the disciple says, uh, it's not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. The word serve in the Greek is diak, diak, sorry. <laughs> I don't speak Greek, so I have problems with the pronunciation. Diakoneo. Diakoneo. Sounds familiar? 
That's the word that deacons come from. Actually, it's really the same word is being used to describe deacons. Deacons basically means servant in, in the Greek. Okay? And that's really uh, what the job of deacons are. We have deacons in this church. I know some churches have different structures of, of, of uh, leadership. We try to follow as closely as we can what the scripture teach, and they teach the deacons partake of the leadership. Part of the leadership belongs to the deacons. I'll talk in more detail about that. Now, there's, there's a number of, of things we need to realize here. First of all, this was not the apostles' idea. There's some missing verses here in a sense. You almost have to read between the verses to realize what happened. And if you look at the ancient church, they were a praying church. Whenever there was a need, they, they went to the Lord and they prayed about it. When they had to select a replacement for Judas, they got together and they prayed. When they had to, when they were being persecuted, and they prayed, they asked the Lord to give them boldness. The end of this passage, it says after the church brought them the people that were going to be deacons, it says they prayed first, and then they laid hands on them. So there's no way they would have made this decision without praying and going to the Lord. So first of all, this came from the Lord. It wasn't their idea, it was God's idea. Deacons, okay? Second of all, it wasn't, uh, you know, a fix-it solution, okay? God wasn't, you know, oh no, the devil's attacking my church, what am I going to do? I have an idea, let's have deacons, okay? God never responds to the devil. It's always the devil that responds to God, because God is the one that has the original idea. So God always had the plan for deacons, and it just, this was the opportunity in which God was revealing his plan. In a sense, a good thing came out of it. God used this evil thing, that Satan was doing to bring something good out of it, to reveal some of the structure and design he had for the church that was going to make the church a better place. God loves the church, and he takes care of the church. And the way he takes care of the church and shows his love for the church is by giving people responsibilities to take care of the church. Remember, the deacons are servants. Their job is to take care of them. And in particular, the deacons had the job of taking care of the church's physical needs. Okay, we're, we're told in the scripture that there's, there's another office of leadership in the church, and that's elders. Okay? The elders' job is to take care of people's spiritual needs. There's, there's a verse I really like about elders. It's in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17. And it talks about them, and it says, it, it, it tells the believer that they should be, they should yield to these people, and it gives them the reason, this is the reason, for they watch out for your souls, as those who must give account. And in the day of judgment, when, when people, believers are judged based on what they did on earth as believers, elders will have to give account to the Lord Jesus over their responsibility to Him. And they're, what they're gonna have to account for is the souls of believers. What happened to this person? Okay, Why didn't they progress? Why did they remain a baby Christian all their lives? Now, it may not have been the elder's fault. It could be that the believer just refused to heed the, the uh, advice, the guidance, the care. The elders can't force you to do anything. They can, they can just point the way to you. This is an area of problem in your life, Father. This, this sin is really stopping you from growing. Or this teaching you believe, this is a false teaching. It's going gonna, it's gonna to slow growth. It's not going to allow you to to grow and to serve the Lord as you want to. So they take care of the souls. Okay? The deacons have the responsibility of physical needs, like the widows we see in this passage. God cares about both. He cares about our soul, and he cares about our physical needs. And the deacons 
have the responsibility to take care of the believer's physical needs. It's, it's really one of the things that shows that God cares for us. He cares about me. He cares about my physical needs. Why? Because he appointed deacons to take care, take care of my physical needs. Okay? It doesn't mean I shouldn't work and provide for myself, but if I'm in an area of financial troubles, the deacons of the church recognize it, that I need money to put food on the table, they will take care of me because God loves me. It's one of the ways God provides for the saints. He elected the deacons. There's another way of recognizing how much uh, God loves the church, and it is by looking at, at the job requirements for the deacons. If I decided, I, uh, if my wife and I decided that we couldn't care for our kids, <coughs> for some reason we, we, uh, you know, we both had to work to make ends meet, and we needed to find uh, somebody else to take care of our kids, we might put an ad in the newspaper, but we will be pretty detailed as to the job requirements. You know, we, we aren't going to let just anybody take care of our kids. Okay? We're going to want to make sure that it's a person who knows what they're doing. Maybe we'll want to see that they actually have experience taking care of kids. Maybe we'll want to follow up on references and make sure they did a good job. Well, when he talks about the job of deacons, let's go ahead and turn to First Timothy. In chapter 3, God does the same thing. He gives very specific instruction or job qualifications for deacons because he wants to make sure that it's somebody that he can entrust the needs of the church to. Again, it's because God loves the church. He loves you as a believer and wants to make sure you're taken care of. And so he's very selective on who is going to be allowed to do this job. Okay, let's read a, a few verses. So this is First Timothy Looking at chapter 3, in verses 8 through 13, it says, Likewise, deacons must be reverent, not double-tongued, not given to much wine, not greedy for money, holding the mystery of the faith with a pure conscience. But let these also first be proved, then let them serve as deacons, being found blameless. Likewise, their wives must be reverent, not slanderers, temperate, faithful in all things. Let the deacons be the husbands of one wife, ruling their children and their own houses well. For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a good standing and great boldness in the faith which is in Christ Jesus. So imagine reading this in the newspaper. God has an ad out there. You know, I need somebody to take care of the physical needs of my church. And this is the qualifications. You want the job? You want to take care of God's church? Here's what you need to be. First of all, there's character requirements, which is interesting. In most jobs today you'll apply for, they'll ask for schooling. You know, how many years did you spend in school? What degrees did you get? How many years of experience do you have doing this job? Well, God really starts with the heart. He wants to make sure that it's, it's a person with the right character that he can trust in. So the deacons have to be reverent. Or they have to be people that you can respect. You don't want someone who people can't respect managing the church. Uh, not double-tongued. He has to be a man of his word. And let me tell you, that's hard to find. In, in, my, in my work, people will say all kinds of things to get out, out of trouble. Okay? Uh, it's hard to find somebody who will be faithful to his word. But that's, 
That's a requirement if you want this job. God wants you to be a person who is true to his word. Not given too much wine. And you can, instead of wine, you can put anything. Okay? Anything that can be an addiction, a source where people try to get satisfied, get satisfaction from or pleasure from. They're given to it. They're addicted to it. Uh, there's a lot of things people are addicted to today. It could be, you know, alcohol, drugs, narcotics. It could be television, computer games, any other type of games. I have a problem with that one. Okay? There's a lot of things that, that we want to, we do to try to keep ourselves happy. And you can't be that way. If, if you're dependent on something else to make you happy, besides for the Lord Jesus, then that's not a job for you. Okay? You have to be pleased and satisfied with Him. Not greedy for money, especially for a You're handling the money that belongs to the Lord. If you start looking at that money and thinking, boy, you know, it'd be really nice to buy a bigger house and I, I see the provision from the Lord right here. You know, you don't want to be, you don't want somebody who, who looks at the Lord's money as something that he might be able to use to provide for himself. Holding the mystery of the faith with, with a pure conscience. That's a little difficult to understand what it's saying. The mystery of the faith, it's talking about the gospel, all the truths that are revealed in the New Testament. They weren't known before. That's why it's called mystery, because it wasn't known before. Now it is known, okay? A person who can hold all the truth of the mystery, it'll be things like, you know, love, love your brothers like, love, like Christ loved them, like Christ loved you, okay? Can you do that with a pure conscience? Well, that's the type of person the Lord wants as a deacon. He wants somebody who will have a pure conscience over all the teachings of the Lord Jesus. Not somebody that holds back and says, well, I'll hold on to this one, I'm not going to do this one. Well, your conscience will start bothering you about it. Well, the Lord Jesus wants someone with a pure conscience, meaning he is obeying. Okay? It's, really, it's similar to what the apostles told the church. They said to, when selecting these people, select someone who is full of the Holy Spirit. Being full of the Holy Spirit means controlled by the Holy Spirit. You're doing what the Holy Spirit wants you to do. Well, that's the type of person God wants to be taking care of his church. Okay? Deacons. Okay, so that's the character requirements to be a deacon. There's other things here uh, we can look at really quickly. It talks about them being proved. When I first uh, got a job, I was told that I'd be put on probation, and I was kind of offended. What do you mean on probation? Well, most people today, if they're going to hire somebody to do a job, well, they want to make sure they can really do it. They give you a month or three months to try it out. You're doing well, great, they'll keep you. If you're not doing a good job, well, sorry, you're out of there. I need someone who can do this job right. Okay? But it's the same. it just shows how important this job is to God. There'll be a test. He wants to make sure you really are doing well before he confirms you, yes, that's your job. You'll be the one doing it. Um, <clears throat> I'll skip the wives for now. I'll get back to them later. Then talks about being husbands, willing their children and house as well. Uh, this job is uh, for men. Okay, It doesn't mean that, that God uh, loves men more than women. No, they're all the same in Christ. They're all equal before him. But he has certain responsibilities he wants men to do. Certain responsibilities he wants women to do. This is one for men. But there's, usually there's going to be another responsibility for a man. And that is, you're the head of a household. And what it's saying here, it's kind of like a reference, asking for a reference. Okay, before, you're, you're applying for the job of a de- being a deacon. 
Well, let me come and spend a few days at your home. I'd like to see how you're doing at your home. At the sphere God has already given you, are you taking care of them? Are you taking care of your wife? Taking care of your children? Taking care of your house? Well, if you're not, I don't really want you to take care of my church. It's simple. Okay. Okay, going back. Well, first of all, people are, are willing to do quite a bit to be qualified to a lot of jobs these days. There's a lot of jobs that are, seems like they're really cool. I have a, a friend at work. He's, uh, he's about to retire. His granddaughter wants to be an astronaut. And so even in high school, she already started planning her path. To be an astronaut these days, it really helps if you have a degree in astrophysics. So she wants to get a degree from astrophysics, not just from anywhere, but a qualified university that NASA is going to respect, which meant she started studying really hard in high school because she wanted to be able to get into that program. And now she's in college and she's studying really hard and she's doing internships. All these things that will qualify her to one day be able to be an astronaut. Okay. Well, do you want to be able to take care of God's church? Well, there are some qualifications and you can work at them. There isn't a single item here that you as a believer cannot do. Okay? You just have to work at it. Uh, going back to the wives, there's a, there's a proverb that I don't like a lot, but it says, it says, behind every great man there stands a great woman. And the reason I don't like it so much is because the impression I was given of it, at least as a young child, is, well, it really the man is a no good nothing. But the woman, you know, she is great, and therefore she is making him look great. Okay, well, this is not what it's talking about. It, it gives her a qualification for the wife. The reason for it, if you go all the way back to Genesis, and you look at God's design in making the man and the woman, he, he, talks, about the, he talks about the fact it's not good for a man to be alone. I will make him a, a helpmate. Oh, in the good old King James, it's a helpmeet. But the, so the idea is, whatever goal he has for the man, the man cannot accomplish on his own. He needs somebody else to help him, or it's not going to happen. And the same thing is true about a deacon. Uh, a deacon cannot stand alone. If a deacon doesn't have the right wife, forget it. He's not going to be able to do the job. And I threw the challenge to the deacon, to men here, you know, do you want to be a man that serves God's church by being a deacon? How about you as a woman? Do you want to be the type of a wife that a deacon could have? Do you want your husband to be a deacon or a man who serves the church? Or if you're unmarried, do you want to be married to someone like that? And the question is, if someone who wants to be a deacon, will he want to marry you? Will he recognize you as a, a potential wife that will allow him to accomplish uh, the job of a deacon? Okay, let's return to Acts. And we saw uh, how they dealt with the issue, generally speaking. The, the, they appointed the deacons uh, to do the job. And it says that the saying pleased the whole multitude. And that was evidence that they succeeded. So the church was now being reconciled to each other. The, the Greeks, the Hellenists were no longer murmuring against the Hebrews or the Hebrews against them. They were all pleased. They were once again of one heart. We talked about the fact that in Acts, very frequently it uses this phrase, they were all of one heart, they were all of one mind. Well, once again, they're coming back together. This issue has been resolved. And I think I, I, 
I've written down five, five rules, or uh, I shouldn't say rules, what they call it, principles, five good principles to resolving these issues. Okay, number one is seek God's solution. They sought God's solution to this divisive issue that was happening. Number two is deal with it promptly. Jesus says this, Jesus says, therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Okay? God doesn't want you to wait. If there's an issue percolating that's dividing you from another brother, you need to deal with it immediately. And a good application for that is me and my wife have been fighting weeds in the backyard. We were talking earlier about a root of bitterness. The, the, the longer you wait, the deeper that root goes and the more difficult it is to pull that weed. It's the same thing as in issues. If there's an issue dividing you from a brother or a sister, it's just going to be more difficult to resolve if you wait. It needs to be dealt with promptly. Humility, it, it may not be as obvious, but there has to have been humility exercised on the side of the apostles. Here somebody was telling them, murmuring against them, basically accusing them of mishandling the Lord's money. And they could have reacted in anger, in hostility, but they recognized that there might be a point. They, they looked at their ministry and said, well, I am spread really thin here. You know, I'm ministering the word of God. I'm praying. There's thousands of believers, and I'm responsible of making sure each of them needs are being met. There had to be a humility recognition. You know what? Maybe they're right. Maybe I can't do this job. Okay. It's something important when you have an issue with a brother. Jesus says this. He says, why do you try to get the speck out of your brother's eye when you have a beam in your own eye? Okay, a lot of time we have issues with a brother. <coughs> we don't realize some of the fault might be in us. It takes humility to recognize that. And yet it's crucial. If you're going to resolve this issue with the brother, you have to realize the fault that's your fault. Okay, or you're not going to be able to resolve it. So whenever you have an issue, think about yourself. Is there something in me that that's causing this too. Forgiveness, another principle, that's principle number four. Uh, it doesn't say it specifically, but the people offended, the widows or the people, the Hellenists in general, they had to forgive. They have to, the apostles confessed their fault, they had to forgive. You know, I'm going to forgive you, I'm going to have a clean slate here. I'm not going to use this against you anymore, recall it against you, I'm not going to let it be a dividing issue, forgiving. Uh, it says uh, in Colossians 3.13, if anyone has a complaint against any other, even as Christ forgave you, so you must do also. If you think about all the sins that Jesus forgave us for and how great they are, it's a small thing to forgive a brother for the things that brothers have done against us. Okay? Now, it may be a big thing, but compared to what Jesus did for us, it's a small thing. Last item I have is sensitivity to uh, to uh, to uh, brothers that have especially weak some some areas of weaknesses. Again, it's it's not as obvious where it's exercised here, but if you look closely at the names of these uh, deacons, I'm not going to try to pronounce all the names again, but all the names are Greek names, which suggests that all the deacons were Hellenists. And you'd figure, well, the Hellenists can't be such an absolute majority in the church. You know, fair representation, there should be some Hebrews there too. Well, to me, it just shows that the Hebrews recognize, you know, this is just an area of weakness. The Hellenists, they've been, they have been discriminated against, and they're going to be very conscious to any sign of discrimination. 
let all the deacons be Hellenists. And, and you're, you're removing this stumbling block. There'll, there'll be less reason why they'll ever think that they're going to be you know, discriminated against. And that's something we need, we need to, uh, to think about. A uh, couple of quick verses. 1 Corinthians 8.13 Therefore, if food makes my brother to stumble, I will never again eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. One of the issues in the early churches was that meat in those days, most of the meat on the market came from a pagan temple. They were sacrificing animals, and they're done sacrificing the animal will sell the meat. You know, that give you a special deal on that one, because we already we got everything out of it that we wanted to get out of it. A lot of believers were, you know, I don't want to eat the meat offered to pagans, which they had a good point about. And Paul in his discourse says, well, you know, if I realize by eating meat I'm going to offend my brother, you know, as, as long as the world stands, I'm not eating meat. I don't know about you, that's a lot for me. <laughs> I like my meat. But he was willing to let go of something precious to him because it wouldn't offend a brother. Remember, the, the love among the saints is so precious to God. He doesn't want anything spoiling it. If I have to suffer something personally to keep the love, if I have to lose something, I'm willing to do it to maintain this love. Okay, well, the last verse here, it says, And the word of God spread, the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. How would you like that to be Fremont, California, 2007, this verse speaking about him? Let me read it again. And the word of God spread, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Fremont, California. 2007, and a great many of the, I don't know who I would put for the priest, people that are highly opposed to the gospel, were saved. Well, the key for it in this passage is the love of the saints. I know that, well, I don't know for a fact, but I'm going to make a good guess that there's someone here, maybe more than one person, that, that has something against the brother, that you have an issue that you haven't resolved. Well, think of what that's causing, okay? It, it, it's preventing fellowship, it's preventing the sharing of the gift, whatever gift you have that the Lord has given you, you're not ministering to that person right now because you have something against them, which makes for an unhealthy body of Christ and a body of Christ that's less able to minister to the world, to reach out with the gospel. It's creating distraction. You're distracted by it, and probably more than one other brother is distracted by it, which means instead of thinking about the gospel, you're thinking about this issue. And last of all, you're reducing the testimony of the love that should be there between you and the other believer, which is the meat of the testimony that people will believe when they hear the gospel and then they look into your life to see, well, I want to see how it works out in your life. Well, you have all these issues. You know, I think I'll, I'll go down the street see what the Muslims have to say. So let me encourage you, if there's anything in your life that's, that's an issue that's dividing you from another brother, sister, deal with it. For the love of the saints. There's just so many appeals in the scripture to be of one-minded. That's what, that's what God wants for you and me. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your love to 
us, we realize it's because of your great love that we can love each other. It's not something that came of us, it's something that came of you. Lord, we want to be a source of joy to you. We want to not create any hindrance to this love that you put in us and you want to see it shared among the saints. We, we would uh, love to see you using that love as a testimony to Fremont, California, 2007, that you might be able to go out and save people, that we might hear of multitudes being saved. Lord, if there's anything in me, anything in any of us, that's a hindrance to this love, Lord. We pray that you show it to us and give us the uh, boldness, the love for you to deal with it in the way you want it dealt with. We commit ourselves to you in Jesus' name.